0: Hello everyone, this is Historiansplaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms, and if you can help to keep them coming and you want to hear all of the materials, please go to my Patreon page and contribute whatever you can, even if it's just a dollar. So it's been a couple of weeks since I Posted new material, but I promised a while ago that I would produce a segment about the history of policing. And I'm going to focus on the origins of policing, how this activity and how police forces came about. Now, it might sound a little strange or surprising that that would be a historical topic. It might maybe strike some people sort of like, The History of Sexuality, the famously provocative title of Michel Foucault's book, in that it might seem to some people like such a thing shouldn't have a history. It must be just a kind of natural part of the world or self-explanatory, that it shouldn't have a historical origin and evolution. And I think it is common for many people to just assume that police and the activity of policing the stuff that police do is just natural and obvious and self-explanatory and that it shouldn't have a specific origin in a specific place and time but in fact it does at least to some degree. Some people might immediately think well policing is just another word for law enforcement and it is common for people to use law enforcement or law enforcement officers as just a kind of byword or synonym for police. But in fact, when you think about it, that's really not true. Police are by no means the only people who enforce the law in our society, in modern day America or Britain. All kinds of people enforce the law all the time there are different sorts of public officials there are health inspectors building safety inspectors who enforce the law there are judges magistrates security guards people like teachers enforce the law if they break up a fight in their school and even just ordinary lay people enforce the law all the time by locking their doors or shouting out their window at a trespasser and saying get off my property or calling 911 whatever it is all kinds of people in all kinds of situations take action to enforce the law police are hardly the only ones who do this. So simply calling police law enforcement is really much too broad. And in many ways the activity of policing, the things that we expect police to do are really much more specific. They are the activities that may require the use of force in the process of enforcing the law. So that's actually narrower it might seem and in fact even police aren't even the only people who might use force in enforcing the laws people might use force in self-defense and all kinds of things so police we could say roughly are the specialized trained public officials who are tasked with the use of force in enforcing the law and There are many different ways that that can come into play. So if we think about, well, what what do police do? What are the things we consider to be policing? And break that down. I think that there are basically five distinct activities or functions that we in the modern West, particularly the U.S. and Britain, expect police to perform. And each one is different. So these five basically are responding to alarms, investigating crimes patrolling serving warrants and keeping public order which i'm putting in quotation marks air quotations so firstly responding to alarms when someone reports or calls for help about a crime an attack or any other threat to their safety we ordinarily expect police to respond to that and of course today The most common way that that happens is with 911 calls. Police are supposed to be answerable to 911 if the threat in question is some sort of crime. Secondly, investigating crimes. If a crime has already occurred, we hold police responsible for investigating and figuring out who is responsible, although they are not necessarily the only ones who do that. Third, patrolling, and this is very significant, right? Patrolling is distinct from the other two things I just mentioned, responding to alarms and investigating crimes. Those are both things that police or other people also can do retroactively after some danger has appeared. Patrolling is when you place yourself somewhere or travel around a town, a neighborhood, a region, looking for crimes, preemptively trying to spot them and contain them before they occur. So this one is preemptive and anticipatory. And naturally, one very important part of patrolling that police are expected to carry out today is traffic, is monitoring the roads, enforcing traffic laws, pulling people over, and so forth. Fourth, serving warrants. Right? If there is a warrant for someone's arrest, if there's a warrant for a search of a home or other premises, police are often tasked with carrying that out. And in this way, they act out the decisions of the judiciary and have their authority from the court system. And fifthly, keeping public order. This is probably the most loose, amorphous, or elastic role that we put police in Uh, you know it can follow from patrolling or responding to alarms but police are supposed to do things like break up fights contain protests or riots and remove nuisances or obstructions things like noise complaints or things obstructing the road uh, blocking or threatening traffic this is a very sort of broad task or function that we still assign to police but that also is very significant and doesn't necessarily just fit neatly within law enforcement with all of these responsibilities and tasks come certain powers that are granted to police in order to carry out these functions the ability to stop or detain people to pull over motor vehicles make arrests and, as I said, to use force, including sometimes even to use deadly force. In order for a public bureau or office to be understood as police, it really has to combine all of those above five functions. If it doesn't have all of them, it doesn't seem to count as police, and their activities don't necessarily count as policing. For example, the FBI... The FBI is tasked with investigating crimes and serving warrants, but they do not patrol. You do not see the FBI sort of hanging around, you know, trolling around a neighborhood looking for malefactors or public nuisances. And hence, we might call the FBI law enforcement. They might fall into that broad category, that broad, you know, ambiguous category, but they're not normally considered police, and they're not called police. An even more stark example would be the U.S. Marshals, who, are, who exist specifically in order to serve warrants, especially to serve arrest warrants across state lines, which is very hard for state governments to do. They have limited jurisdictions. So they perform that specific function, but they don't respond to alarms. You can't call 911 and get the US Marshals. They don't patrol, right? They're not gonna cruise around your block. So again, we might call them law enforcement, but they are not police. So all in all, if we look at the actual usage of this term and this concept of police and policing, it's very expansive, but also very limited at the same time. Police are people who perform all of those law enforcement functions that might require the use of force, but none others. They do not extend beyond that. They are not social workers, they're not EMTs, they are not U.S. Marshals, and so on. They are, in this way, specialists in the state-sanctioned and legitimate use of force. In this sense, they are really where the rubber meets the road in terms of state power, right? If we think of the traditional definition of the state as the institution with a monopoly on the legitimate use of force, the police are the place where that special function is actually carried out when push comes to shove, right? Sometimes literally. Police, as we understand them, are loosely modeled upon military forces, right? Organized armies, and navies that have long been understood to carry out the authority of the state with the use of force. They have uniforms, insignias, they have titles like captain, lieutenant, sergeant, and so on that are borrowed directly from the military. And they are armed with weapons that are considered necessary for their job and sometimes with guns, especially in the United States. They tend to be armed with firearms. So you could say in a way they're kind of paramilitary or militaristic. And this basic understanding, this concept of the police or a police force, is fairly new and modern. It is not something that goes back into the mists of time. It's something that arose mainly in Britain and the United States within the last 200 years in the context of English common law, which still has power in both Britain and the U.S. But for most of the history of English common law, there have not been police. There have not been anything even really like modern police forces. These are a pretty new thing. These various functions that I described that police perform, those five different roles, All of those functions used to be separate and performed in different ways by different people in society, some by formally appointed officials, some by just regular civilian lay people, and those roles and powers only were aggregated together in Britain and the United States, starting at the turn of the 18th to the 19th century. That was sort of the pivotal time when things like what we would call police started to emerge, and this was largely a response to the threats of possible resistance or unruliness by large laboring populations in cities. So the police are a creation, a modern creation, put in place to deal with problems in cities, at least problems from certain people's points of view, and they were previously really unknown. The word police comes from French, right? It's, it's a French word based on Greek words like polis and politeia. And it developed in the French language to basically mean governance or regulation in a local area. So each city would have its police in the sense of its own rules, ordinances, and the powers it had to carry them out. And the word carried over and started to appear in English beginning in the 1790s. The first known use of the phrase police officer dates to 1794. The first formal use of the word in reference to an organized law enforcement agency is from 1798, when London created the Marine Police, which was really just a very narrow, specialized official force, for protecting cargo in the Port of London. And the institution and concept of police as this sort of all-purpose law enforcement agency really only appeared and became common after 1800. So I'm going to talk about what existed and how law was enforced before the existence of police and how police came into being and developed up until about world war one and that's roughly where i'll leave off i won't come all the way up to today at least not yet and i'll focus mainly on britain and north america where these different strands of history and law and custom came together to give birth to what we know as the police so if we go back into the earliest anglo-saxon society that we know of Law and order was kept in large part by the practice of vergeld, where people were organized into bands and tribes, who would basically protect their own, right, fend off attackers or hostile outsiders, and disputes would be managed through the paying of fines. These sort of social groups that people belonged to would have a fund of gold their vergeld, and they would pay out fines if someone from their group committed a crime against someone else. And in this way, you can see it as a kind of organized or regularized vigilantism, right, with the different tribes, clans, or individuals sharing some basic set of norms and standards that allow them to settle uh, grievances through paying a vergeld. Now little by little in Anglo-Saxon England in the early Middle Ages a more systematic organization began where Anglo-Saxons who who lived in English villages and manors would be organized into groups called hundreds which were supposedly in concept about a hundred households, and this hundred was expected to meet regularly and manage their affairs and enforce social rules and laws and settle disputes, much as might have been done before with the Vergeld. And they could respond to alarms if there was an attack or a robbery or a kidnapping. Uh, someone should raise an alarm, sometimes called a hue and cry, and all the people of the hundred were expected to respond. They could pursue offenders, make arrests, and they also could hold trials. So whether they caught an outside attacker or bandit, or if someone within the community committed a crime, a rape, a murder, abuse, they could be jailed and put on trial. But This raising of a hue and cry or alarm was really critical, both to catching malefactors, like criminals, and also to respond to possible attacks, right? By whether it's by Vikings or Picts or whatever sort of outside enemies might come in. And the hundred could gather a militia to defend the local area. So, this was the rough sort of customary practice in anglo-saxon england in the early middle ages after 1066 the norman rulers started to standardize this system more and to spell out more specifically the legal responsibilities and powers of the hundred to control crime and most importantly in 1285 the king proclaimed the Statute of Winchester, which was the most important law regarding crime and justice in the High Middle Ages. And the Statute of Winchester codified this requirement to raise and respond to a hue and cry. So the hundred was considered collectively responsible. If a crime happened, an attack, the alarm must be raised and everyone in the hundred is responsible for gathering together and reacting. And it made the hue and cry a legal term. So it was now codified in written law. And the statute required the people of the hundred not only to try to catch a criminal or an attacker, but also to pursue that person, those suspects, beyond the bounds of their own town and go out into other parishes or towns or shires and continue raising the hue and cry and gathering a larger and larger force until the evildoers were caught. So there was this massive collective responsibility, not just to defend yourself and your own little village or manor, but to defend the wider public. So in addition to this system codified by the statute of Winchester, there also was sometimes intervention by higher authorities of one sort or another to try to stop crime or violence and to try and punish offenders. So sometimes lords of manors and estates would also enforce the law and hold a court, uh, maybe at their own manor house, and question people, investigate, and mete out punishments. And over the course of the the high and late Middle Ages, more and more of these sort of higher-level designated officials became involved as the English common law evolved. And common law refers to standardized laws throughout the realm backed up by the authority of the king, and certain royal officials then were empowered to enforce and carry out this common law. And The most important and most universal one was the office of sheriff. So in the ninth century, the Kingdom of England first began to create this office with the title of sheriff. And the word derives from shire reeve. So a reeve is a caretaker or custodian. You might have a reeve of a manor or an estate but a shire reeve is understood then to be a custodian or caretaker of a large area an entire shire and they were somehow appointed or approved by the king and the duty of the sheriff most of all was to respond to alarms to be they would be alert and vigilant and when an alarm was raised they should respond with force and pursue and arrest offenders, and they had the ability to jail suspects. But sheriffs were not usually expected to patrol. They didn't go around, you know, pacing up and down the street or riding around on a horse on the roads looking for crime. They were expected to be on call if crime or violence happened. Of course, they couldn't perform these functions well alone, They might call on friends, allies, trusted citizens, but they also could appoint deputies. They had had this ability to deputize civilians and bring them into their law enforcement activity. So the sheriff remained as the main specialized law enforcement official in the English-speaking world for almost a thousand years. This was the familiar system. Most law enforcement was carried out by this kind of legalized vigilantism by the local community and sometimes also involved the support and leadership of the sheriff. And this basic model then carried over to the colonies in English North America. Particularly, sheriffs would be either appointed or more often elected in towns and counties in America, in the 16 and 1700s. So, in the 18th century, as the colonies are growing and as England is becoming more urban and densely populated, you have this basic law enforcement regime, which still mainly relied on individual laypeople to be vigilant and counter crime, but also with the involvement or support of some minor local officials. Sheriffs, of course, but also often posses, right? Just temporarily ad hoc gathered gangs, really, of usually armed men, sometimes on horseback, who would take up temporary duties to pursue or investigate crimes. And they often were also encouraged with rewards. So the local mayor or governor or sheriff might put up a monetary reward for the apprehension of a criminal or a suspect. Also, after crimes had occurred, individual people who had been victimized were expected to go to court, bring suits, swear out warrants in court in order to empower the court to seek out and arrest suspects. But they could be supported by individual local officers, people like watchmen, constables, marshals, these sort of quasi-official local office holders who had shifting, often ambiguous and limited functions. Some of them, like watchmen and constables, might be concerned really with safety, public safety of all kinds. If they patrolled around, it was more often because they were watching for fires, uh, maintaining the integrity of walls, keeping lamps lit. They were not specialists in the use of force like we would think of police today. And in fact, when force was used, it more often was by a posse of ordinary civilians, maybe supported by a sheriff. And these little minor officials, like watchmen and constables, were generally controlled by the court system. And sometimes they were also might be elected. In New York, for instance, most law enforcement officials were either sheriffs or constables who were elected by their local wards. It was very difficult difficult for the royal government back in Britain to be involved in appointing these minor local officials. So you had a lot of really local control and local variation in how law enforcement was organized in the colonies. So it seems by and large, this sort of hodgepodge makeshift system of combating crime was broadly accepted right on up through the American Revolution. And it was only later first in the 1780s and then more so after 1790, that they started to change and that bit by bit, the powers and functions of law enforcement were more and more consolidated in organized, centrally controlled agencies. So why would this happen? Why would this start to change in the later 1700s after the American Revolution? Well, there was a dramatic growth of cities, London was already a large city, it was continuing to grow, and also colonial cities really boomed and became bigger ports, and then industrial towns after about 1790. And with this urban growth, there was bigger concentration of wealth, both in forms of merchandise and valuable real estate and money, and also bigger and bigger concentrations of laborers of largely poor working people of various backgrounds who were there thrust into these towns and cities surrounded by wealth. And there was growing inequality, a growing class divide, and a lot of tension and distrust. So after about 1780, you see a gradual rise in more and more riots, sabotage, theft of money and merchandise. And all of this then after 1789 was happening in the shadow of the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution, which created a lot of fear, fear of public disorder, public rebellion. So it was in this context of rising conflict and fear and distrust that the rudimentary forerunners of police started to emerge. So firstly, many ship and factory owners started hiring private guard forces that were organized almost like little private militaries to protect things like ships and dockyards and factories. And some of these entrepreneurs, business people, also started to ask for cities to step in as well and try to manage or prevent resistance and disorder by laborers or sailors. So these early forerunners of police were at first largely unofficial, but with more and more demand for full-time officers to keep order and protect property. You see first the creation of a so-called marine police organized specifically to protect valuable cargo on the ships and dockyards and warehouses of London in 1798. So London in this way leads the way by first starting to think of the existence of such a thing as a police force, but it is just a very narrow, specialized force specifically aimed at protecting particular kinds of property in a particular place. These sort of forces, like the Marine Police in London, largely carry over the functions of these private guard forces that had already been organized and hired over the past 20, 25 years. The first forerunner of a police force that we can see in the United States is actually a little earlier, although it was not called police, but it was similar in a lot of ways, and it would evolve into a police force. The first one was in Charleston, South Carolina, and it was created in 1783, the Charleston Watch and Guard. So, this watch and guard force in Charleston was not entirely unusual. There were other sort of small private guard forces already in existence, but this one was formally, officially incorporated by the town. It was bigger, it was more formalized, and it was paramilitary in a lot of the ways that I described before. And after about 1800, it grew to over 100 officers, which for that time was really tremendous, right? So we were no longer talking about just a few dozen guys with clubs or pistols protecting a dockyard. We're now talking about a big enough force to actually patrol the whole town. And why Charleston? Charleston was a large town. It was prosperous, but it was not the biggest in America, not by a long shot. So why did Charleston lead the way? Well, this Charleston watch and guard was aimed primarily at monitoring the slaves in the town. So it was combining the roles and functions of these sort of private guard forces that already existed together with the slave patrols that were growing and developing in the countryside of the American South where slave plantations were growing and spreading. And there was a long history of patrolling by sort of quasi-official militia forces wandering around, watching the woods, the swamps, the roads, to try to catch and prevent slave escapes and also to try to monitor and limit communication and possible conspiracies among slaves on different plantations. So in Charleston, as the city was growing, there was a bigger and bigger urban slave population. And this created a whole new set of risks. You now had thousands of households in Charleston that had slaves who often did work in a number of different places. They might be hired out, they might be going to the market to sell or buy goods, they might be doing work at the harbor, in the shipyards. So there was a lot of movement among slaves in this growing town and so there was increasing concern that there should be some slave patrol type force in the town to monitor what was happening and try to prevent possible plots, riots, rebellions. And in fact, this watch and guard grew even more after 1822, the year of the Denmark Vesey plot which was a major widespread plan among slaves in Charleston to rise up and strike for freedom. And it was foiled by 10 arrests made on June 19th, 1822. So this sort of furthered the sense of urgency, you might say, in Charleston to grow and expand this watch and guard force, which eventually became like what we would call a police force. Nonetheless, the first formally constituted citywide police force expected to perform all of those law enforcement functions that I named before and really carry out the sort of direct hard work of law enforcement on the street in a city was created in London by the Metropolitan Police Act enacted in 1829. And by that time, London had grown even larger It was well over a million people. And it had many migrant workers who had come into the city, British, Irish, even some African and West Indian. And thousands of them were working in the workshops and small factories, the docks and dockyards in the poor houses. And there was a lot of anxiety in London about these masses of workers and what they might be up to in the same sort of way that people were concerned in Charleston about the slave population. And the Metropolitan Police Act was spearheaded by a member of parliament named Sir Robert Peel, who convinced the House of Commons that they ought to create a standardized, centralized police force. So this really becomes the blueprint for what we think of as police forces. Who was Robert Peel? How did this come about? What was the thinking? Well, Robert Peel was a conservative MP, one of the leaders of the Conservative Party, and he served as Home Secretary for King George the 4th. Previously, before he became Home Secretary, he had been Chief Secretary for Ireland. And in that role, being involved in the management and governance of Ireland, he was very concerned to uphold and maintain British authority in this island, which had been for many years a separate kingdom and had been treated in a lot of ways like a colony, really the first colony of England. It had now been integrated and annexed into the United Kingdom, so it was fully part of the kingdom subject to the authority of parliament and the crown. But there was this dramatic split between the small, wealthier, land-holding minority, which was largely Protestant and largely of English descent, and the mass majority of peasants, who mostly did not hold land and were mostly Catholic. And Robert Peel opposed the proposal to emancipate and grant equal rights rights to the Catholics. So he wanted to maintain this exclusion of Irish Catholics from full membership in the body politic of the United Kingdom. He wanted to maintain British Protestant domination of the island. And in his office as chief secretary for Ireland, he oversaw the creation of the Royal Irish Constabulary, which was a kind of makeshift paramilitary force mainly aimed at suppressing rural revolts, so strikes and rebellions by these Catholic peasants. And this Royal Irish Constabulary was a sort of new, odd hybrid creation. It wasn't a local militia completely just rooted in the population of the land, but it also was not exactly a foreign occupying army. It was something in between, and it was made up of a mixture of Irishmen so people from within the country, but who were mostly elite, mostly Protestant. But because they were from the country, they could maintain at least some veneer of legitimacy in their actions to try to tamp down resistance in Ireland. So it seems that Peel took this basic model and used it in creating the London police. This new police force would be centrally hired and managed, by royal officials it would be armed although not with firearms they would be armed and they would have the power to control the workforce in london which also incidentally was largely irish a lot of these poor irish peasants who couldn't support themselves on the land were going and working in london but the staff the personnel of this new police force was recruited mainly from outside the city and outside of these poor Irish laborer neighborhoods that they were supposed to be policing. And they were encouraged to stay out, to not move in to the inner city, but to stay out in these outer villages and neighborhoods. So it was very intentionally a police force that was supposed to be aloof from the population of people who needed to be patrolled and monitored and, if necessary, repressed. This London police force then was used as the main model for police forces in the United States when they first started to be formally founded. This started with Boston in 1838, the first municipal police force in the U.S., if you do not count the Charleston Watch and Guard, then New York City in 1845, and in 1854, Philadelphia merged together various local constabulary groups into a city police force. Now, interestingly, the largely immigrant laboring population that these early police forces were aimed at monitoring and controlling were also largely Irish, especially after 1840, you get waves of Irish migrants into the United States. So right from Ireland itself to London to America, there's this common pattern of police forces being created largely out of concern or fear about the Irish population. This new New York City police force then was used critically to suppress the draft riots that broke out in New York in 1863 during the Civil War. But those riots were so enormous that the police actually had to get help and support from the U.S. Army. And this, again, is a common pattern that in many instances, if riots, strikes, break out, disorders of one sort or another, the police form the first line of defense to try to contain or quell them. But then the military or the militia might be called in as well if needed. So an important point to take from this early era of police development up to about 1850 is that the divide between the police and the public that they're policing was a feature, not a bug. When the loyalty and obedience of the populace are in question, the authorities, the city governments, the royal government, want outsiders to police them who can be relied upon to use force when necessary to suppress disorder or disobedience. In the U.S., there were two different major populations that the governments and the elites were worried about. In the South, it was mainly African Americans. As I said, that's why the Charleston Watch and Guard developed. In the North, it was immigrant workers, particularly Irish but not exclusively Irish, also Germans, later Italians, Poles, and others, but it was these mostly continental European and Irish, mostly Catholic working people who were coming in working on the ships, the shipyards, the factories, the construction sites, the railroads. So in these years from about the 1830s to the 1850s, there were sometimes strikes or walkouts of one sort or another. But there also were very many internecine riots as well, especially along ethnic and religious lines. Riots broke out between Catholics and Protestants in places like Boston and Philadelphia, and even street fights between groups of different Catholic immigrants, between Irish and Germans, or Germans and Italians. And so these sorts of open conflicts were very frequent, and they were both horizontal and vertical, you could say, between different classes with different status statuses, or between different groups sort of vying for who's going to control a neighborhood, a block, and so on. And in these sorts of situations, it was often too hard and too complicated to call in militias who might take a very long time to arm and organize and come into the city. And even if you did so, those militias often might just take sides in these fights and riots rather than quelling them. They might say, oh, well, you know, we're going to take the Protestant side and shoot at the Catholics. So it was really inadequate to rely on those sorts of old mechanisms. And more and more mayors of cities in the United States see that they really need an armed force under their own control, answerable to themselves alone, who will crack down on these sorts of riots and disorders so the model of a police force which you see in london in new york in boston in charleston it slowly spreads and is adopted in more and more cities including increasingly in smaller cities after 1850 from about 1850 to 1900 these police forces were never elected that that would defeat the purpose in the views of the mayors and other politicians who spearheaded their creation they were not locally controlled by wards or local councils. They were answerable to the mayor. The common pattern, at least in the 1850s and 60s and 70s, in the mid-19th century, the pattern was that they were intentionally composed of people who were very unlike and very separate from the neighborhoods that they policed. These mayors who oversaw and commanded these police forces often though had multiple competing loyalties. So very often they wouldn't really care about the wishes or the interests of the particular immigrant neighborhoods or working class neighborhoods that they that the police were patrolling. But they might still be thinking about who are their voters? What sort of groups do they have to placate? Whose favor can they win by having the police treat them a little nicer or in a little more tolerant way? Whom can, whose favor can they win by hiring some people as police or even as higher level officers of the police force? And little by little, the police start to evolve and become more closely connected to these populations that now in many places also can vote and have some political power. But before we get into that, we should note that the first impetus for the creation of these police forces up through the 1850s, the first impetus is for riot control. That's the main point. We need someone who can suppress rebellions, attacks, arson, street fights by these populations that the mayors and the elites see as unruly. Only later are the duties of police then extended. And after 1850, more and more you see police who are largely salaried, so they're being paid, they're taking up a certain amount of resources. The mayors start to put them to greater use, not only in monitoring and quelling riots, but in patrolling, looking for crime, things like robbery or assault. They start to be put to use pursuing petty criminals, making sure that they're brought to justice. So the sort of things that local posses might have done previously, those jobs more and more are shifted to these police forces. They also start to do things that maybe don't necessarily involve crime, like tracking down missing persons, children who have wandered away if you have police and they're patrolling around and they're being paid you might as well have them do these roles the role of police starts to expand to include more of the things that we think of now as policing also the idea starts to arise that police should do investigation if they don't know who's responsible for a crime Police should be put to work figuring it out. And the first police detective bureau was created at Boston in 1846, and then that practice spread to other cities. So before 1846, you might expect private investigators or just ordinary civilians, you know, the Sherlock Holmes types, to go around and try to figure out crimes. It was only after 1846 that more and more people started to think, we need professional detectives on the police force. Many police forces also start to do other things for public health and safety and welfare. Many of them create homeless shelters where they have to shelter wandering people, paupers, soup kitchens. Many of them do street cleaning. So the roles of police in the mid-19th century even expand beyond what we would consider law enforcement to a kind of all-encompassing, multi-purpose, public health and safety agency. But soon these duties were transferred away, right? We, we don't think of those as policing anymore. And in large part, those functions of police were taken away because a lot of police didn't like them and didn't think they were good at them. They thought they were maybe too high status or important to be doing that sort of work. So the role of police was pared down just to those functions that involve the possible use of force, and maybe just a few others related to that. And more or less by 1870 or so, we can see the activities of police have taken a certain shape that more or less is like what we think of today as policing or police work. So police were fighting crime at this time. This did happen more and more. It was not just about monitoring and controlling the population. It was also about fighting crime. But the crime fighting that police were tasked with tended to focus very much on moral codes. So activities that the governing elites would see as immoral, things like alcohol consumption and drunkenness, prostitution, gambling, and even things like Sabbath breaking. So a lot of the arrests and activity of police in the 19th century were focused on these sorts of things that in large part today we would consider sort of really minor vice. And these activities and the police focus on them were big points of contention between the largely Protestant elites who ran a lot of the city governments and the Catholic and non-religious working population. The elites, it seems, really wanted to create a sort of tame and respectable working class that would conform to the sort of inherited norms of Protestant America. And this led to a continuing cycle Cycles of lax enforcement of these laws and codes, followed by crackdowns, then protest, and then the police would back off until another crackdown and over and over. So there was a lot of tension and push and pull between these largely laboring communities and the police who were under the command of the city governments. And in addition, the duty to investigate and track down criminals really pushed the police to get familiar and get to know these populations that they were supposed to be monitoring and controlling. And in many cases, police would get very involved with these sorts of quasi-legal businesses like saloons or you know hotels that might also be brothels. And there was a lot of blurring of lines, a lot of crossover, and activities that the elites regarded as corruption, things like police taking bribes or payments to turn a blind eye to certain kinds of crime. And you know, it may be easy to see where that would be considered corruption. You know, go go to a saloon and say, "Hey guys, uh, if you, pay us a little bit under the table will allow a prostitution ring to operate here and just pretend we don't notice but often from the point of view of the communities who are being policed this could be a welcome phenomenon this might be a, a perfectly easy inexpensive way to get the police off your back and be able to do the things you want to do without getting arrested and thrown in jail but As this practice develops through the later 19th century, it led also to cycles of scandals. So just as there were cycles of crackdown, laxity, crackdown, protest, so there were also cycles of scandals. And many reformers who tended to come from sort of middle class or respectable Protestant backgrounds would try to root out this corruption and call for impartiality, consistent, uncompromising law enforcement. And often, in America especially, these reformers would invoke the example of London and kind of idealize the London police force, which they saw as very professional and very impartial and able to enforce the law across the board. After about 1870, as you get into the later 19th century, there are also important distinct developments in America that set them more and more apart from the London example. Already at this time, there was an early militarization. So we might talk about militarization of police in, say, the 1980s, 1990s. But in many ways, there there was a previous wave of militarization In the late 1800s, there was increasing drilling, loosely copying what you'd see in military units, the issuing of firearms. It became more and more common for police to officially have guns issued to them, and the creation of uniforms, particularly blue uniforms. And these developments, including the uniforms, often provoked a lot of distrust and resistance from the public, The reaction to the first appearance of uniformed cops on patrol was a lot like the reaction to Google Glass a few years ago. People saw it as an irritating and insulting intrusion into their lives and the functioning of society, and in many cases, people fought back, attacked Uniformed police officers drove them out of their town or their neighborhood. Police were were openly mobbed in the street and hounded out. And many cops, understandably, refused to wear these uniforms. They didn't want to be pointed out to everybody all around them. Hey, I'm a cop and I'm here to patrol and watch you and maybe arrest you. Some of them also saw it as unseemly. It was a sort of fancy livery like you'd see among servants in Europe. It was foreign, un-American. And also a lot of the cops didn't like being spied on by their own bosses who then could hound them and make sure, are you patrolling, are you making arrests, Are you know, you're, you're not allowed to sit and have a drink at the saloon and fraternize, you have to be constantly on the job. So for all kinds of reasons, both the public and many police themselves really hated these developments. Many cops were fired or resigned if they refused to wear the uniforms. And a lot of why there was this massive public reaction was for all the reasons I've already mentioned. But also increasingly in the late 19th century, the cops are expected to watch and constrain a bachelor subculture. So now they're not only thinking about how do I prevent a massive riot from burning down a warehouse in the Irish neighborhood, but they're also thinking how do I prevent things like little gangs of young men from getting drunk and harassing women or going to a brothel and this sort of unrespectable or immoral bachelor subculture is under attack and many of them fight back so there's a period of clashes and even you could say sort of riots between these sorts of local gangs and police but by about 1890 people are starting to adjust to these changes And more and more, the duties and practices of police forces are becoming more standardized. They're commonly adopted among cities across the board. And the public starts to adapt in various ways. With universal male suffrage, which is now enacted in almost every state, a lot of these working communities, including these sort of traveling, unattached young men, actually have some political voice and with that you get more and more intense political competition for votes between different political parties and machines there's more and more penetration of democratic competition and there's competition between neighborhoods between wards between ethnic groups for resources like money and jobs And more and more you see political and ethnic factions forming in the cities that vie for control of the police. They realize that they can use their votes and their political muscle to redirect how the police operate and who becomes police. And in many cities, this competition is really intense and you get police sort of pulled back and forth between different parties and between Irish and Sicilians and Germans or whoever. And so this can be settled by creating bipartisan boards, overviewing and managing the recruitment of police and the management of their resources. And the different parties who want political support start to recruit new police officers from within these working communities. So ethnic groups, first and foremost the Irish, and then also others, start to percolate into the police forces. It's no longer an agency composed of mainly Protestant men recruited from outside the city or outside the neighborhood. It's starting to shift and look more like the local groups that they're actually policing. And this divide between police forces and the communities that they're enforcing the law in diminishes. And police work increasingly really becomes an avenue of mobility, a way for men from lower class backgrounds, from immigrant and Catholic backgrounds, to gain some well-paid and respectable work and to have some of the dignity and security of being a public servant. So the police by about 1900 really have this peculiar double nature where on the one hand they're protecting industry bosses, the upper class, the politicians who are allied with the industrialists, but also at the same time they can represent and speak for the lower class, the working class, the children and grandchildren of European immigrants who live in these dense urban neighborhoods. And as the makeup and orientation of the police shifts, there's also an increasing hesitation to use the police to suppress strikes. So as the working population becomes more organized, and in some ways there's a kind of resurgence of labor militancy in the 1890s and early 1900s, the loyalty of police comes into doubt. Mayors are not as sure now that they can count on the police to use force to suppress actions like strikes or riots. And it seems increasingly possible that as with the militias decades earlier, these police might even side with striking workers because they have a lot in common with them and may know them as part of the community. In some instances, particularly the Boston police, they were never used to suppress strikes. It was just understood, firstly, that the police might not follow orders to do things like fire on picketers or rioters. And also that even if they did, it would be enormously politically unpopular and would lose them power and legitimacy. So more and more other police forces in other cities shift into the same situation as Boston, where they're kind of off limits for that specific purpose for which they were originally created. And more and more, you see in owners of industry, railroads, shipyards, factories, turning again back to the use of private guards, privately hired sort of paramilitary forces, particularly the Pinkertons, who specialized in the suppression and countering of labor unions. As the police shift and evolve, they also become harder and harder to control centrally. And cops on the beat become more and more independent. The training of police was pretty loose. You know, they might be drilled in certain ways and they might be taught certain rules and given a manual. But when they're out there patrolling, there's no telling what they'll encounter and what sort of choices they'll make in the moment. A lot of them are out there alone or in pairs. And a lot of police work was more and more improvised, shaped by what police officers themselves thought was appropriate, or by the community norms, what the local people actually wanted police to do. By 1900, there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of gray area about what exactly police are supposed to do and what are the proper limits of their powers and their actions. Particularly, what are reasonable grounds of suspicion? What is adequate grounds to stop someone, question someone, arrest someone? That's a big ambiguity that was not often worked out and is still a problem to this day. Another is the appropriate use of force. How much force should a police officer use? What is warranted? What is permissible? And when is it okay for a police officer to use deadly force? So these sorts of ambiguities are out there and they continue to kind of fester, you could say, all the way through the last hundred or more years. And as different police forces evolve... And negotiate these boundaries, there's a really wide divide in how different police are received and viewed and whether they're seen as legitimate arms of the law and whether or not they're accepted in their communities. On the one extreme, there's London. In London, the royal government is very concerned about how police will be viewed and whether they will reflect poorly on the authority of this very elite controlled government and so in London there are very strict limits on the use of force they do not have firearms and even with the limited arms they have there are very strictly enforced rules and the police are expected to work very hard to gain the trust and acceptance of the public and by about 1910 they had done so to a great degree On the other extreme was New York. In New York in particular, there was very frequent violence and brutality, a lot of even cycles of violence between civilians and police. The politics in New York were much more democratic than in London, but they were also highly, highly partisan. There was really bitter partisan political competition, and that partisanship infiltrated into the police and who was hired and who was governed, and so there was very little trust in the impartiality of police, and they had much less legitimacy than, say, the London Metropolitan Police. Outside of those two instances, there was all kinds of variation, where different people in different towns and neighborhoods might feel very differently about their police and have different ideas of whose interests the police really served. But as I said, all in all, in the United States, police became more and more independent from mayors and politicians and party bosses. And they gradually became more responsive to the communities they were situated in. And sometimes. Some police forces even came to see themselves as part of the working class with class interests like other laborers. And this development culminated, you could say, with the first police strike in Boston in the fall of 1919, when the police organized and they wanted recognition from the city government as a labor union, and they wanted to affiliate with the AFL, the American Federation of Labor. And officials in Massachusetts responded very negatively and vehemently. And when the police went on strike to demand recognition, better pay, better working hours, the militia, ironically, were brought in to the city as scabs to replace the striking police. (laughs) So police forces that had originally been created in order to suppress actions by workers like strikes were now themselves on strike and being in many cases threatened and coerced by the militias. There were multiple marches and riots over several days in September 1919 and eight striking police officers were killed by state militia. And ultimately, the governor of Massachusetts, Calvin Coolidge, stepped in and ensured that all the striking police were fired and replaced, although the replacements were given better pay. (laughs) So ultimately, it did result in an increase in pay, but it did not benefit all of those officers who had been fired. And this clash in which Calvin Coolidge stepped in and really took a stand against the AFL is what brought him to national prominence, and he later became vice president and president. So by this time, it was fairly clear that city police forces were no longer useful for the purpose of controlling and suppressing worker actions. They had just exhausted that function. They were Sort of crime fighting forces of a sort, although it was very ambiguous and shifting exactly what sort of crimes they were targeting and how. But that original purpose for which city police forces had been created was now a non starter. And this is the situation that led to the development of the first state police forces. So if these issues of strikes and sabotage and riots were so endemic in the cities, why did state governments feel the need to create statewide forces that could patrol and make arrests all around the countryside? That was partly due to this situation with the evolution of city police forces and also because of labor actions outside the cities. But the first forerunner of what you could call a kind of state police force was in Texas, the Texas Rangers. And the Texas Rangers were organized in the 1820s when Texas was still part of Mexico. It was in the province of Coahuila y Tejas. And at that time, there was an increasing migration of Anglo-Americans into that part of Mexico. And they organized among themselves a sort of quasi-official paramilitary group that mainly was aimed at protecting settlements of Anglo-Americans in Texas as against Native Americans and at sort of battling and holding off possibly hostile indigenous nations. And only gradually, little by little, after Texas became part of the U.S. did it evolve and shift into more of a crime-fighting force like what we would call state police, although they're still called the Texas Rangers. The first force specifically and explicitly created as a state police was in Massachusetts in 1865. But it was a pretty small force. It really couldn't do all that much. It didn't have a, much of a role. It really didn't play much of a part in the 1919 strike, for instance. And the first really big and Important and impactful state police force was created in Pennsylvania in 1905. So, why did Pennsylvania take this dramatic action in 1905? The big cities in Pennsylvania already had their own police forces. Philadelphia's dated back to the 1850s, it was one of the oldest in the country. But after 1900, The state legislature was dominated to a great degree by the coal mining industry. That was the biggest single industry and employer in the state of Pennsylvania. And in the early 1900s, between about 1902 and 1904, there was a series of coal mine strikes at these rural mining sites around the Appalachian part of the state, And this wave of strikes really scared the state government. You know, the possibility of crime, rebellion, and also of simply losing this lucrative industry. So the state wanted an outside force that could suppress these strikes and riots. And it would have to be something very separate from the actual striking workers themselves. These local town and county police and sheriffs couldn't be counted on to use force and do things like fire on striking workers if called upon, like just the same as the situation in Boston. So the state legislature decided to create this statewide police force, which would be intentionally kept segregated out of the local communities of townspeople and miners. They would be housed in barracks, military-style barracks around the state, And local people apparently hated this development, saw them as enemies, and derided this state police force as Cossacks, referring to the imperial cavalry that was used by the Tsars to enforce imperial authority in Russia. So by 1919-1920, if we round out our story about that point, we can see that there was tremendous variation in the class position and roles of different police forces. Right, They played different parts and were viewed differently in different cities. You might have within one city, you might have a municipal police force and a state police force. And these two might have different roles and different powers and might have completely different relationships with the people they're policing. So there was huge variation in how different police were viewed and trusted or distrusted in their different communities. This whole situation then was then also dramatically upset after 1914. So with the beginning of World War I, American industry really boomed in supplying things like food and ships and arms to the war front in Europe. And with that industrial boom, a northward migration of southerners was stimulated. So you might remember, as I said before, in the south, the large laboring population was largely African-American, not entirely. In the north, it was mostly European immigrants of various backgrounds and their descendants. Well, all, that whole picture starts to get shuffled after 1914, when there's this huge demand for labor, especially in big cities, especially in big northern cities, and both black and white southerners start to migrate into these cities. And there's a kind of unpredictable mixing and intermingling of different people from different backgrounds, including people of different colors who are classified differently according to racial laws. And this puts police in a very peculiar position and a precarious position. By this time, by 1914, the police are largely made up of what later writers would call white ethnics, although that was not really the term at the time. So people who came from European backgrounds, such as Irish, Italian, Polish, Portuguese, who had been very severely discriminated against, in american society had been excluded from neighborhoods excluded from jobs and workplaces and particularly excluded from elite universities and because they were excluded from universities you know harvard and yale did not want to fill their freshman class with the sons of italian and polish immigrants because they were excluded from the universities they were excluded from lettered professions like law and medicine and so the police had become a sort of alternative avenue for people to serve as leaders in their communities. Well, these people who more and more staffed the police, they may have come from low-status positions in the point of view of the northern cities at that time, but they were still legally classified as white. And as such, they were still generally treated and viewed as higher status than african-americans so they were in this weird kind of in-between position again of working for the elites of society but also trying to act as protectors and advocates for their communities and also being lower status in the eyes of many people but still higher under law and custom than african-americans And so this created a tinderbox situation where African-Americans start to move in to cities like Chicago or Detroit or Philadelphia in very large numbers. And people have to negotiate, where are we going to accept these African-Americans? Where can they live? Where can they work? What are the limits and the boundaries now that these northern cities are becoming more complex. And police are thrown into the middle of a situation where many people expect them to sort of guard the boundaries and keep these new laboring populations coming into the city under control, as they had been expected to do almost 100 years earlier. So when we talk about the controversies about police today, a lot of that goes back to this peculiar and you might say in some ways impossible situation into which police were thrown as the northern migration, the northward migration from the south began. So I'm not going to get into that. I'll leave off these past 100 years or so for possibly a later discussion. But this is the picture you have to understand that could only come into being after a previous hundred years a previous century of creation and evolution of police and the concept of policing so i expect that next i will produce another installment in my series on the history of the united states in 100 objects and that one will be patron only so if you want to hear the next one please go to my patreon page and support at any amount you can and you'll have full access to those patron-only materials. Thank you.